We are bringing together imperfect people in pursuit of a whole life. Welcome to the Pathfinder Church Message Podcast. This week, Pastor Dion shares his message from our series, Past Forward, The Heir's Obligation. I have fallen victim to the latest trendy thing sweeping across the world. I play Wordle. Anybody else? Um, it's a big deal for me to play games. I don't play games very often. Um, that's my wife wishes I played more games. I don't do it. But when I play games, they're games like Wordle. I, I, I like games kind of like, like these things. Take a look at this. Anyone know what number comes next? Shout it out if you do. Yeah, 40. Yeah, that's what I got too. Or how about this one? Uh, this is kind of more of a visual thing. So which of these A, B, or C fits in that second box? in this sequence. Any guesses? This one's tricky, isn't it? I should say, I don't actually have the right answers for these. I just looked at them. I, there's no answer key. This is just what I think. Anyone? B, yeah. It's, you know, like if you kind of turn this 180 degrees, you get that. So if you turn that back, uh, you get that. I, I think that's right. Or how about this one? Which one of these is not like the others? Is that, is that D as in dog or B as in boy? Come on. D, yeah, uh, line of symmetry everywhere else, I guess. That's what I noticed, this one's asymmetrical. Uh, one more for you. Um, what number comes next? In the last service, a, a little girl yelled, five. And I'm like, <laughs> you're right, step five is next. So what would be the number that goes with, uh, with step five? Yeah, 24, so you know, like, uh, it's how many white boxes are there, so we're going up by one, so five by five would be 25, minus the, the shaded box, and you get 24, 24, yeah. Um, I love games, and just in life, I love being able to spot patterns. I realize it's something I just love to do. I think we all kind of like to do it. They even say that's part of the reason gambling is so addictive, that your brain is trying to make sense of the things that are in front of you, whether it's a slot machine or cards or whatever. You're trying to, you're trying to figure out a pattern. And in this series last week, if you weren't here with us, we talked about family patterns. We talked about this tool called the genogram or the genogram, depending on how you pronounce it. It is a family tree on steroids and it's built not just to show you who's related to who, but it's there to spot patterns within your family tree. And I bring this up again today just as a reminder to you to commend this to you if you've never done this and you're really serious about this work. This is a really, really helpful tool. You can Google this. You can YouTube it. You will find all kinds of free resources that will help you. You'll spot patterns in your family that are good patterns, things that you're like, I'm so grateful that's in our family. And there are things that you can then be intentional about passing on and preserving. You will spot other patterns in your family where you go, uh-oh, that's not so good. And the question we're going to wrestle with today is when you spot a pattern in your family that's not so good, when you spot a dysfunctional pattern, what do you do then? How are you supposed to handle it? Uh, and to do this today, we're going to look at a real-life family. We're going to look at the story of a man named Josiah. Josiah is not just a man in the Bible, but he was also a king. And when you're a king, you kind of get a double whammy of this stuff. You, you got the family patterns that all the rest of us have, but then there are also patterns of leadership that are passed down. There's a culture of leadership 
that's passed down. And when you're a king, often those things are kind of enmeshed together because your, your dad is usually the former leader and, and that's how it works. So we're gonna look at Josiah at his family patterns. But before we look at Josiah, uh, I, I wanna show you this and it's here too. Um, this is kind of the genealogy or the, or the tree of kings in Israel and Judah. If you don't know this, Israel's a united kingdom, God's people, for a very short period of time. There's a civil war, they divide between north and south. The north retains the name Israel, the south retains the, uh, takes on the name Judah, which was kind of the predominant tribe. And so here you can see it splits, we kind of have these different lines of kings from Israel. We're going to look here at the line of Judah. A whole bunch of kings, way down here is Josiah. We're going to talk about him. But I want to start a couple of rungs up on the family tree, up the ladder, with this king named Manasseh, his grandpa. Take a look at this. It says, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years, very long time. His mother's name was Hepzibah. His dad was Hezekiah. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. So he kind of reverts back to these other worship practices. He rebuilt the high places, literally like worship spaces up in the mountains that worshiped false gods the very ones that his father, Hezekiah, had torn down and destroyed because Hezekiah was a good king. He also erected altars to Baal and Asherah, made an Asherah pole. These were kind of two of the big, god, the big god and goddess of the, of the region at the time, just like Ahab, the king in the north, had done. He bowed down to all the starry hosts. He worshiped the stars, the constellations. He worshiped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, in the temple of Yahweh. We talked about this last week. When you see Lord in all caps, it's really a stand-in. It's, it's a sign that what's being used in Hebrew is God's proper name. God reveals himself by a name. The name is Yahweh. And then the uh, Hebrew people got kind of nervous about misusing the name of the Lord. They got superstitious about it. So whenever they would see the word Yahweh, they would say Adonai, which means Lord. And we preserve that, trans, uh, that, that tradition there in our translation. So uh, get this. He built altars in the temple of Yahweh to these other gods. The very place which Yahweh had said, this is where I'm going to put my name. In other words, he took Yahweh's temple and put other altars to other gods there, which is a big no-no. In, in the two courts of the temple of, of Yahweh, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his own son in the fire. Now, this was a huge part of false worship, of idol worship back in these days. The gods of Molech, Chemosh, those were their names. They demanded child sacrifice, and Manasseh sacrificed one of his own sons to those gods. He practiced divination, sought omens, consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil, I'll say, there's an understatement in the Bible. Here is one. Much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. Now, now, just a brief note about this. I think sometimes when we see God getting angry at people worshiping other gods, we sort of assume that God is a prima donna. Like he wants all the glory for himself. You know, can't share any of the spotlight with anybody. And that's why he gets mad. That is not the case. The reason God gets angry about this stuff is because he created us to be in a relationship with him. And here's why that's important. Because when you worship God, you don't deprive yourself of anything. When you worship God, when you offer things to God, what happens is you end up more full, you end up more whole. 
And when you worship anything other than the true God, you you are depriving yourself. Those gods are taking your resources. They're taking your energy. They're taking your children away. They're causing, in in the way these other people worship, there's exploitation, there's temple prostitution, like there's child sacrifice. God sees those things, those, those forms of false worship, as a way that his people end up being exploited and emptied and betrayed and deprived, not filled up, and that's not what he wants for us. See, it's not about God being a prima donna, not being willing to share. It's not what it means that he's jealous or that he's aroused to anger. He can't stand seeing his people be abused, which is what all of these idolatrous ways of, of worshiping actually do. Uh, so that's Manasseh. Whew, bad. Never a king in Judah worse than Manasseh. Reigned 55 years. Well, Manasseh has a son, Ammon. Ammon was 22. I know some of you right now are singing in your head, right? I don't know about you. I'm feet, right? No one? I'm not the only one who likes Taylor. Come on. Uh, Ammon was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem two years, very short reign. His mother's name was Meshulamath, daughter of Haruz. She was from Jatba. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord as his father Manasseh had done. He followed completely the ways of his father, like father, like son, worshiping the idols his father had worshiped and bowing down to them. And here's what happens to him. He forsook the Lord, the God of his ancestors, did not walk in obedience to him. So Ammon's officials conspired against him and they assassinated the king right in his palace. Well, that didn't go over well with the people. Then the people of the land killed all of the assassins and they made Josiah, his son, king in his place. So uh, we're going to talk about Josiah, but notice the family pattern here. You got Manasseh, wicked king. Ammon's just like him, dies tragically. All of this family family distress and trauma. Then we come to Josiah, the guy that we're going to study today. 2 Kings 22 is is, uh, his story. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. Anyone feeling like an underachiever at that line? Like, wow. And he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. His mother's name was Jadida, daughter of Adiah. She was from Bozkath. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and completely followed the ways of his father, David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. Here's what you see about Josiah right away. That Josiah is not like his dad. He's not like his grandpa. You go all the way up the family tree, the the line of kings, all the way to the very top, to King David. the, The king who was known as a king after God's own heart, who wasn't perfect, but he had a heart to be faithful to God. He loved God and worshiped him only. What we'll see in Josiah is that Josiah was a pattern breaker. He was a guy who did not continue the destructive patterns in his family tree. He was markedly different. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to be a pattern breaker. Anyone else? Well, for the rest of you, I'm sorry for your kids and grandkids. I want to be a pattern breaker. I want to do better. I want to pass on something better to those who come after me. And for those of you who don't have kids, like, don't you want to leave something better for the people who are around you, nieces, nephews, just people that you mentor? I I hope you do. And today through Josiah, we're going to learn how. I'm going to run through his story here, and and you can take this all in. So uh, this all begins his pattern breaking when he's about 26, 
In the 18th year of his reign, King Josiah sent the secretary, Shaphan, who's uh, kind of his secretary, reads and writes for him, um, son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, to the temple of the Lord. Sends him on an errand. And he said, go up to Hilkiah, the high priest. You're going to see those guys, Shaphan, Hilkiah, high priest, secretary, Josiah's the king. Uh, And have him get ready the money that has been brought into the temple of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have collected from the people. Have them entrust it to the men appointed to supervise the work on the temple. So here's what's happening. When uh, Josiah was about 20 years old, he ordered renovations on the temple. It had fallen into disrepair. You, You heard what his dad and his grandpa did. Now, this probably wasn't, in my opinion, Josiah, like, you know, being faithful to God. It was probably more about national landmark preservation. It's kind of like, well, hey, you know, the, the big building in town is the temple. Let's take good care of it. So um, he asked the people to give offerings. They gave you these offerings. And there's enough money now for the temple to become, uh, to become renovated. And so it's, it's time, in other words, take this money, give it to the workers to make it happen. So have these men pay the workers to repair the temple of the Lord, the carpenters, the builders, the masons, and have them purchase timber and dress stones to repair the temple. But they need not even account for the money entrusted to them because they are honest in their dealings. So they're going to they're gonna start this work of rebuilding the temple. Now, in the renovation project, they discover something that will be life-changing for Josiah. Which makes me wonder, just this is kind of off on a tangent, but what's the weirdest thing you ever found in a home renovation project? Some weird stuff sometimes, isn't there? I've heard people finding like money stuffed in walls or other just like other bizarre things. A lot of shoddy workmanship, I'm sure too, but um, I've done a lot of home renovation. I've, I've found some shoddy workmanship. I've never found money. The most interesting thing I've found in a home renovation is I found some, uh, some construction worker 30 years ago left me a couple cigarette butts and fast food wrappers in the wall. It's like, well, that was a nice thing to do, I guess. Um, but that, that's it. Um, they make a much more important discovery as they begin to work on the temple. Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, hey, all these renovations have been going on. I found something interesting. I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. And he gave it to Shaphan, the secretary, who read it. What this tells us is there has been a temple in Israel. There's been a high priest. Hilkiah is his name. But there hasn't exactly been a Bible, or at least not the full Bible. This book that they find may be a reference to the Hebrew Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, or it may just be a reference to the book of Deuteronomy, which was a a book that was pretty important. It talked about how the people were to live and what would happen if they turned away from God, if they broke the covenant with God. They make this discovery, and it's a really important discovery. It's going to change everything. So Hilkiah gives it to Shaphan. Shaphan, the secretary, went to the king, and he reported to him. Here's what he said. Your officials have paid out the money. We're starting the work just like you said. All that's going to happen. And then he said, but you know something else here? Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And then Shaphan does what the secretary does, because the king doesn't read his own books. Like before you have Audible, you got a guy who does it for you if you're the king. And so Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. And when Josiah heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. And he gave these orders. I mean, he realized, oh, man, we are way 
way out of line here. He gave these orders to Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, son of Shaphan, Akbar, the son of Micaiah, Shaphan, the secretary, and Asiah, the king's attendant. By the way, why all these names? <laughs> Just to wear out your pastor, right? No, why all these names? These are reminders that this is history. These are real people. They would have been witnesses of all of these things, so their names are remembered. Um, So he says, hey, go send this entourage to inquire of Yahweh, the, the, the true God for me and for the people and for all of Judah about what I just read in this book that has been found. For great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because those who have gone before us have not, get this, those who have gone before us have not done right. This has not been healthy. They've not obeyed the words of this book. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written there concerning us. So Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, Akbar, Shaphan, Asiah, went to speak to the prophet, the prophetess Huldah. She was the wife of Shulam, son of Tikva, the son of Harris, keeper of the wardrobe. You've got one of those, right? Keeper of a wardrobe. Uh, she lived in Jerusalem in the fancy part of town in the new quarter. Classy part, lots not of new construction there. She said to them, this is what Yahweh, the God of Israel says. Tell the man who sent you. In other words, tell Josiah the king, this is what Yahweh says. I'm going to bring disaster on this place and its people just like you read about in that book. Right? I'm going to make it happen just the way that the book warned you about for the reason that you have forsaken me and burnt incense to other gods and aroused my anger by all their idols that their hands have made. My anger will burn against this place and will not, and will not be quenched. And again, remember why? Because all these other ways of worship are exploitive. They're, they're damaging. They cause hurt and injury. They deprive the people. God says, this is, not, this is not how I created you to live. You're supposed to be an object of blessing and wholeness to each other. This stuff cannot go on. But tell the king of Judah, tell Josiah, who sent you to inquire of me, uh, this is what I, the God of Israel, says, considering the words you've heard. Because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before Yahweh when you heard what I have spoken against this place and its people, that they would become a curse and laid waste. And because you tore your robes and you wept in my presence, I also have heard you declares Yahweh, declares the Lord. Therefore, I will gather you to your ancestors and you will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster I'm going to bring on this place. And then the entourage takes that message from the prophetess and they go back and they share the answer with the king. Today, we're gonna gonna break this down and we're gonna look at a process that any of us who want to be pattern breakers in our families a process that we can implement in our own lives. And I just want to tell you that although this is, is, is kind of step-by-step, and I think you can take it step-by-step, there's some order to it, uh, th- this doesn't always work in a linear way. So maybe these are more aspects or components of what it looks like to be a pattern breaker from Josiah's story. Uh, the first one that we're going to look at is acknowledging. If you want to be a pattern breaker, you've got to not just spot a destructive pattern, Do the genogram, read the book, say, oh, look at this thing. The first step is to take it deeper. It's not just spotting or recognizing a pattern, it is acknowledging it. It's really really letting it sink in. It's feeling the weight. 
It's doing what Josiah did, who once he realized what his father and his grandfather had been doing and the kings that came before, he didn't just go, oh. And what he did, he tore his robes and he wept. He grieved. Now, I think too often in our families, we spot these dysfunctional patterns. We see them in our families. We know they exist, but we don't often take the time to really acknowledge them. Maybe you've heard, um, if you're doing some work, generational healing work, this could be a helpful thing for you depending on your circumstances. It's a free test. It's called the ACEs quiz. This is adverse childhood experiences. Looks at 10 different things that can happen to kids before they're 18 um, that bring an undue amount of trauma. It's a way to look at family patterns, different forms of abuse that you might have encountered or um, different forms of abuse that you might have witnessed or drug use or incarceration, things like that. Um, It's a free test you can take. It's just 10 questions. And I took this this quiz a few years ago and I got my response and, and, uh, and it was about actually what I expected. I know there's some dysfunction working in my family. I've recognized the patterns. But then at the bottom of the test after my score, there was this statement that said this, scoring a four or higher on this 10 point quiz means things start getting serious. So four or more of these things are kind of a part of your family pattern. Um, That means things are serious for you. The likelihood of chronic pulmonary lung disease increases 390%. Hepatitis, 240%. Depression, 460%. Suicide, 1,220%. And I had this moment when I read that, and again, not just causation, but there's correlation there. And, but I had this moment where I just thought, no way. A four or higher means all of, all of these other things can emerge. All, there's all this destruction, there's this devastation from these, from these patterns. And in that moment I realized, oh my gosh, you know, like, it's not enough just to recognize these patterns you must acknowledge them. You must, you must grieve them. These things are destructive. They're serious. They have life-altering effects. But the, but the problem is that so many of us, we don't want to go there. We don't want to feel. We don't want to acknowledge. We don't want to grieve. Because who has time to feel sad? Right? Life's demanding. It, like it, it requires everything of you. You don't have time to feel sad. right? You don't have time to feel bad about things. Or why blame people for the mistakes they made before you. They were probably trying their best, right? Why, why make anyone else feel bad? Or, or why risk letting yourself become injured or bitter? But unless we're willing not only to spot these patterns, but to actually acknowledge them, to let them sink in, to grieve them, we do not get to move on in a meaningful way. My sister Hyacinth, she's my older sister, a few years ago she was looking at our family tree and doing some work at Family Records. And, uh, and she called me and she was like, she's like, Dion, do you know that some of our ancestors, they own slaves? And, and I'll tell you, I was just kind of like, okay. You know, it was a long time ago, what's the big deal? And, and she said, I, I am so disturbed by this. And I remember just thinking like, you're overreacting to this. Like, it was a long time ago. We, we aren't like that, that's not our thing. Like, And I realize now that she's better at this than I am. Not just recognizing, but acknowledging. A a moment to say, it is not okay that people in our family, that they owned people, that they used 
people for their own advantage, that they exploited people who had no other option, that they didn't protect and love and provide for people, that they, they manipulated and used people. That, that, that's wrong, and they maybe didn't know that was wrong, or they couldn't admit it, but, but this is our family, and, and she was willing to grieve that. See, some of you right now think that's an overreaction, but I'm telling you, Josiah looked at what his dad had done, his grandpa had done, what people had done before him, and he tore his robes. He didn't just see that there was something wrong. He fully acknowledged it. He grieved it. That's the first component. The second component is confronting. Once you see it, once you let it soak in, sink in, then you, then you confront it. This is the moment in Josiah's story where he, he realizes their way out of compliance, he tears his robes, and then he gathers this entourage to go and consult of the Lord through the prophetess Huldah. In other words, Josiah says, uh-oh, this isn't good. So let's go and have a conversation. Let's go deal with God head on. If, if he's upset with us, let's, let's go and deal with this, with this issue. Let's confront this pattern. For you, once you've spotted and then acknowledged those patterns that are destructive in your family, it's important that you find a way to confront those things. Now, confrontation for you may mean doing just like Josiah, going and having a hard conversation. It may mean having an intervention. It may mean going to a therapist who can help you confront some patterns that may be within yourself or within your family system. It may mean going to a support group where other people can, can gather around you to confront a pattern. Uh, it may mean setting boundaries. Now I'll tell you for years, I've never really liked talk about boundaries. And uh, here's the, you know, the giveaway. It's because I'm not good at them. <laughs> So I've never liked them, but I've often seen people weaponize boundaries, and I don't think that's what boundaries are for. If you want to be set straight on boundaries, there's a 20-year-old resource. It's still just one of the best resources out there on boundaries. It's called Boundaries by Henry Cloud, John Townsend. I, I would recommend it to you if you're someone who thinks you might need help with boundaries, and chances are you probably do, because either you're like me, you're not good at them, you don't set them at all, or you're too forward with them, you weaponize them. Boundaries are simply this, they're healthy ways to confront destructive patterns. Now the issue with confronting is I know there are too many of us who love confrontation. We're too confrontational. There are some of us who, I mean, every time someone does something wrong, we wanna have a confrontation. Like that person cut you off in traffic, you would love nothing more if you could pull them over and tell them about themselves, right? Someone, someone does something to you in line in the store, they cut you off in Costco or they jump in line. You wanna tell them about it. Some of us are way too confrontational. And if you think that might be you, I just wanna remind you of what Proverbs says. Proverbs says, a person's wisdom yields patience. It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. See, for some of us who maybe are too confrontational, take these words to heart. It is to your glory, it is to your credit to overlook some of those minor offenses. You don't have to confront everybody about every little thing they do wrong. But then there are some of us who don't want to confront anyone about anything, even when it's a really, really big deal. We'd rather just skip this step. But you can't be a pattern breaker unless you're willing to engage in healthy confrontation. See, that's the thing about confrontations. Too often, 
it's not done in very healthy ways. Confrontation for so many of us, it turns into punishing, right? We confront because we, we're hurting or we're mad and we wanna hurt back. Let me just say this, you cannot punish your way to healing. You cannot punish your way to healing or to health. It doesn't work that way. That's not what confrontation is for. Uh, confrontation is also not something you can do alone. It always means involving others. See, I don't believe anyone can confront a dysfunctional pattern in their family or within themselves on their own. If you're going it alone, it's a sign that you're not serious about this. Josiah invites this whole entourage of people to go and have a conversation with God. He's dealing with this thing head on. Confronting is an essential aspect. Uh, the third aspect is forgiving. Frankly, this is my favorite part. <laughs> and sometimes I just want to jump straight to this part. Forgiving is, is the sweet part of life, and here's why, it's not because I'm a good person. I've discovered that forgiveness is the only way that you can go through life without carrying around huge, debilitating boulders of pain and offense and damage. Forgiveness is the way you get to lay that stuff down. It is ultimately for you. You get to be free of that stuff. I love to forgive because it's a better way to live. I love to forgive so much that sometimes I just want to skip over this stuff, especially this one, and go straight to this one. And that's not healthy. <laughs> and then there are some of us who, who can do this stuff all day long, but we never want to get to the place of forgiving. But forgiveness is vital. Uh, look how God responds to Josiah here. He says, because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself, you will be buried in peace. In other words, Josiah, there's a lot of dysfunction, but I, I forgive you. See, forgiveness is what takes the power out of our destructive patterns. You cannot break patterns. You cannot be a pattern breaker without forgiveness. You can confront all day long. Unless you're willing to forgive, you cannot take the power out of those destructive patterns. But here's the thing. Forgiveness is not saying it's okay. Forgiveness is not excusing behavior. And so many of us think that it is. And and we even have this phrase, someone hurts us and, and they apologize and instead of saying, I forgive you, we say, it's okay. We need to remove that from our vocabularies in those moments. It does not fit, it does not belong because hurting each other is not okay. It's never okay. These patterns of dysfunction, brokenness, they are not okay. And if you think that's what forgiveness means, if you think forgiveness means it's okay, then here's what that means for you. you. You will think that forgiving means you have to invalidate your pain, your suffering. You will think that forgiving means that you, you just have to do something unjust. And forgiveness, true forgiveness, will always be impossible for you. Forgiving is not it's okay. Instead, think about forgiveness this way. It's not it's okay, it's we're okay. What you did is not okay. I may never even be able to forget it, but we can be okay 
That means we can go forward and not have our relationship defined by this action. We can go forward, and I'm not gonna keep bringing this up, or, or sometimes, even with forgiveness, there's no reconciliation. It's okay, you can forgive and not be reconciled to someone, so it may be, we can't go forward together. Our relationship is too broken, it's too dysfunctional, it's too hurtful, but, but we're gonna go forward, and I'm gonna leave you to go forward in peace. Some of us can't get here. But I'll tell you, until we can get here to this place of forgiveness, um, we cannot take the power out of those destructive patterns. Uh, the final aspect, acknowledging, confronting, forgiving, is repenting, repenting. Now this is kind of a churchy word, maybe you know it, maybe you've used it. Usually when we talk about repenting, we would kind of think about it first, like it's gotta go way at the beginning. But in Josiah's story, it doesn't, it comes very last. We didn't even look at this part yet. After Josiah does all this other stuff and God forgives him, he takes another step, 2 Kings 23. Then the king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem, he went up to the temple of the Lord with the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests, the prophets, all the people from the least to the greatest. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the temple of Yahweh. And the king stood by the pillar and he renewed the covenant in the presence of Yahweh to follow Yahweh and keep his commands, statutes, and decrees with all of his heart and all of his soul. The king says, I'm gonna be a different kind of king today. I pledge myself to, to living differently. But then, not only did he confirm that for himself, then all the people pledged themselves to the covenant as well. See, see this is repenting. Repentance isn't the dramatic stuff. It's not the tearing of the clothes and the weeping and all of that big feeling stuff. Repentance is change. The Greek word is metanoia, change of, of mind and heart. Repentance is turning from patterns that are destructive and, and, and they lead to death, turning from those and turning instead to ways that lead to life. Repenting is ultimately what we're looking for when we talk about being pattern breakers. It's a desire to change, to do differently. But there are a couple things that get in the way of our ability to do this well. Uh, one of the things is oversimplifying. A lot of us start off with a, a desire to do differently, to change, but we oversimplify. Uh, we oversimplify so many times in our families how destructive patterns came to be in the first place. And then as a result, because we oversimplified how they came to be in the first place, then, then uh, we imagine that they're gonna be easy to fix. But the truth is that every pattern, every dysfunctional pattern in your family exists for a reason. It serves a purpose. And those purposes are being served by the pattern with a lot of collateral damage, but they serve a purpose. Idol worship for Israel wasn't just an accident. It wasn't just like, oh, these kings are so dumb, didn't they know, they're just, no, no, no. If you're the king and you allow people to worship whatever God they want, if you allow them to do that, it's, it's probably gonna be better for your rule. They're gonna like you better. Uh, it's gonna smooth relations with outside nations who worship other gods. You have more 
in common with them. It's going to be a way to help the people calm their anxiety. When there's drought and people are starving, you can go just sacrifice to these, these rain gods, and, and it's going to help the people feel like they have some agency in their life. In some ways, idol worship is good leadership. At least it seems like it is. You're doing a lot of good. Now, now there's these destructive fallout, you know, uh, ancillary things to that. But until you recognize that these things aren't, these aren't simple, all these patterns, they, they were there for a reason. The same is true in your family. Every addiction, every pattern of violence, every pattern of abuse, every pattern of infidelity, whatever it is, they are there because they serve some purpose. And there's a lot of fallout, but they serve some purpose. And if you don't take seriously that if you oversimplify it, then here's what's going to happen. You're going to keep repeating those patterns. You're going to set out to fix them. You're not going to be able to, or you will replace those patterns with other patterns that are equally destructive. What gets in the way of meaningful change is that we oversimplify. Here's the second thing. We overcorrect. This is the story of every generation. Now, one generation works too much. We're going to be the generation who, you know, I, I don't live to work, I, you know, like I, I work to live. Or this generation was the latchkey generation, therefore we're gonna be the helicopter generation. We're never going to let our kids out of our sights. Right, overreaction, that's what we do. Yet we know overreaction, that doesn't work. You can look at all the lives that have been wrecked by overindulgence, but just as many lives have been wrecked by strict denial. If you've been neglected as a child, the answer isn't to smother your kids. See, oversimplifying and overcorrecting. Here's the reality. Being a pattern breaker, it may mean, and it will mean, that there is still brokenness and dysfunction present. Being a pattern breaker doesn't mean you get rid of all of that stuff. You know why? Because we're all broken and sinful and dysfunctional people. But to be a pattern breaker is simply this. It's recognizing that you need to take a step toward change, repentance. And that's what we'll learn from Josiah's life. You know, he steps in and he's not like his dad, he's not like his grandpa and he's gonna do different and, and he has this great moment where he does do differently and Josiah is a good king but he's not a perfect king. If you study the rest of his life, here's what you'll discover, that Josiah, yeah, dies kind of young. He dies at like, I think, 39. Uh, and that's because he gets a little big for his britches. He gets arrogant. He assumes that he's God's man. And he tries to go to battle against the Pharaoh of Egypt. <laughs> Not smart. And he ends up dying in battle. Then Josiah has a son, Jehoahaz, who takes over for him. And Jeho Jehoahaz is a nightmare. He goes back to the ways of his, his grandfather and his great-grandfather, Ammon and Manasseh. Uh, there are some parenting gaps there. It's a reminder to us that even when we look at the great kings, King David, Josiah, even the people who did right, none of them are perfect. They did better, but none of them did perfectly. It's a reminder that although they're good kings, none of them are Jesus. And I just want to remind you of that today, that you are not Jesus either. If, if you're like me and you want to set out and be a pattern breaker, please be a pattern breaker. Do better. But even as you do better, you will not be able to do perfectly because you are not Jesus. I, I'll tell you, for me, I started off as a middle schooler 
with a vision for my life. And the vision was that I would have a whole family. Just part of my healing or something just to be like, I I want a family that's different than the family life that I experienced. And so um, with, with Jocelyn's help, and she's been bigger in this than me, she's taught me so much, I've set out on a journey to have a whole family. And some of that desire was good, some of that was an overreaction, some of that was an oversimplification of, of human sin and brokenness, and, and some of that was an overcorrection. Um, but here's what I can say, that, that this has been my life's work. And there are a lot of days where I, I have moments in my family where I, I look at my family and I'm so, I'm so grateful that I've been able to stand and break some patterns. And I look at my kids' lives and they have a very different life than what I had and I'm I'm so grateful to to pass on something healthier to my kids. But I'll tell you, I'll tell you, as many moments as there are when, when I see that and I'm grateful, there are moments of deep grief and disappointment especially as my kids move into adulthood where I I see things in them and and I see things and I go, oh no, that's not good. And and you got that from me. See, I'm supposed to be the pattern breaker here. I'm supposed to be be helping them be whole and having a whole family. And and what I've realized that although I've made this my life's work and I've tried to do this as much as anybody, I haven't gotten it all right. I have not done it perfectly. There's still brokenness in my family. And those are moments for me where I just need to step back and remember that although I am called to do better and I have, I'm not called to be Jesus. See, kids need parents who will do better. But you know what your kids need, your grandkids need, your nieces and nephews need more than that? They need Jesus. Because even when you try your best and and realize it's not good enough or when you just fall on your face because you're not even trying, the one who will be there to pick up the pieces is Jesus. He is the great healer of generations. He is the healer of our families. Last week, right, just remain in him and you will bear much fruit. Just, Just stay connected and he will do good things in your life. You need Jesus more than you need anything because he's the one alone who can change patterns in in families, in, in, in communities, societies, in the world. He alone can take our worst and redeem it. He took a cross and turned it into redemption. He can do that, the ugliest, most evil things in your family. He can turn them around if you trust him for that work. He alone can heal the wounds you carry and the wounds that have been passed on from generation to generation in your family. See, as we do this work, remember, yes, we are called to do better, but our enduring brokenness is a reminder of his enduring love his faithfulness that will not fail even when we fail, whether we're trying our best or not. You need Jesus because if he is present, then he's not just present, he's standing there with you and for you, fighting for health, fighting for life, and fighting for your healing. So as as we set out to to acknowledge and confront and forgive and repent to change, to be pattern breakers, yes, let's do better. But above all, let's remember we need 
Jesus. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you for not abandoning us. in all of our dysfunction. In all of our brokenness and our pain. God, I wanna be like Josiah. My heart's desire is it's to not only experience life and wholeness, it's, it's to pass it on. Lord, I wanna do better. And I want us as a church to do better. I want us as people to do better. I want us to be like Josiah, God. but I recognize we will not be free from our brokenness in this life. The dysfunction and sin, it follows us in every generation. So God, I thank you for not abandoning us. And not only have you not abandoned us, but you have pressed in on us you put on flesh, you, you came near us, you came to the darkest places, the places we would never expect to find you, you came into those places through Jesus and you made a declaration to us that you're not afraid of our brokenness, you're not afraid of our dysfunction, you're not afraid of the skeletons in our closet. You, you, will, you will walk into all of those places and bring life and light and healing. God, I pray that today you would do a work of healing in us. God, that you'd help us do better. But Lord, when brokenness remains, as I know it will. God, I pray that you would just turn us back to Jesus. That we'd see him on a cross paying it all for all the things that we could never do for ourselves. And we would realize that that is enough to cover over our gaps. God, thank you for not abandoning us, but always coming near, offering life, holding out life, persistently pursuing us with life. We acknowledge as much as we need to do better, we, we most of all need you. Come near right now. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Pathfinder Church Message Podcast. If you would like to hear more messages like this, hit the subscribe button. You can also find more resources at our website, pathfinderstl.org.